Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the SciBeat Podcast, where your host, award-winning author and cybercrime journalist, Deb Radcliffe, interviews hackers, coders, intelligence experts, agents, officers, cybersecurity pros, and other interesting harbingers, heroes, and warriors. These conversations are sure to get you thinking. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello, I am Deb Radcliffe, host of SciBeat, so named because Sci is my lead character in my cyber thriller series, The Breaking Backbones Hacker Trilogy. I've dubbed this next episode CISO's Under the Gun. CISO stands for Chief Information Security Officer, also referred to as CSOs, Chief Security Officers, which is what I call them in my books. CISO is often pronounced as CISO, just like the CSO title is. So you'll hear some interchanging between those two terms as we go forward with this episode. Having spent 30 years covering cybercrime and cybersecurity, I'm familiar with the tough roles that CISOs fill. So tough, it's a job I would never want and or be able to handle Rock and a hard place come to mind when considering how difficult it is to fully secure today's burgeoning networks, with company leaders all too quick to discount the CISO's security advice, and then, when the shit hits the fan, these same leaders are just as quick to throw said CISO under the bus. For this introductory episode to my CISO's Under the Gun series, I will start by reading from book one of my trilogy, Breaking Backbones, Information is Power. In it, CISOs actually do come under the gun. They are blamed for a massive hacker and drone attack against the Globecom data centers around the world that broke the evil Globecom network backbones, hence my title. There are also some sections that express sympathy for their consuming, stressful, and thankless jobs. Book one is about breaking Globecom's hold on everyone through human chip implants called unique identifiers. Since Globecom also owns the network and the data centers hosting the information these chips access, it is a system ripe for abuse by evildoers behind Globecom. But one insider CSO, Leonard Smith, is working against Globecom while other CISOs are caught in the crossfire. I'll start by reading from chapter nine, and you might hear a little bit of page turning as I read through the actual copies of my book. In chapter nine, it's called House of Ying. Ying is the wife to the Globecom CSO uh, in the China hub. His name is Leonard Smith. And Globecom has just gone down, and one of the board members of CISO is questioning Ying about her husband's potential involvement. Chapter nine, House of Ying, present day. Adriana Dupres, 53, sits elegantly on an overstuffed sofa in the posh living room of her classic country chateau. Across from her, Ying is perched on a 14th century armchair while sipping from a steaming cup of tea. Thank you, my dear, for coming. Your husband, he does not know you are here, no? Adriana asks. He thinks I'm in New York. At a meeting with the reserve, Yang answers. Good, good, Adriana responds, a little distracted. 
Rather than her normal cordial self, Adriana seems intense today. Of course, who isn't? With all of Globe calmed down, their entire operation is in turmoil, and the whole world is in chaos. Adriana takes a sip of her scotch and then sets the crystal eyeball back down on her onyx coffee table. There must be an inside person, insists Adriana, her French accent a little more pronounced than normal. How else would they know where to strike? And with such precision. Whoever it was, I don't know, Ying says honestly, but it seems that they took advantage of weaknesses even we didn't know we had. And that's another thing. We pay our security people a lot of money to keep out of our, our systems protected, no? So why were they not protected? Adriana continues, her voice slightly raising. How does your security fail on such a global catastrophic scale? Ying suddenly realizes where this is going and why she was brought here. She gets a sinking feeling in her stomach, but says nothing, not wanting to stoke the fires growing in Adriana's eyes. As if reading her thoughts, Adriana continues, one of the IT leaders is your husband, no, Leonard Smith. He is one of our CISOs, works in the China Hub. Tell me about him. Feeling protective, Ying responds cautiously, I'm sure Leonard had nothing to do with this. Right now, he's working like a madman to find out who's responsible and make repairs. We are both losing sleep over all of this. Yes, yes, I understand, Adrian responds, not really caring. Tell me, has he, has Leonard Smith, been acting suspicious lately? Ying senses a calculated coldness she's never seen in Adriana before. Gone is a graceful auntie who Ying used to know and in her place is a master interrogator. Nothing really stands out, Ying answers, trying to stay calm. He's been a little more loving these past few days, but he says I've been spoiling him in more than, more than normal, too. So I, I don't know what to tell you. We've just ordered him to a meeting of the CSOs in D.C. so he can sort this out for us, Adriana shares. I see, says Ying thoughtfully. All of the CSOs are going, including the CSO from the Euro-Arab hub? Will she also be there? She's currently stuck in the Moscow office coordinating the investigation with Dame Director Strand, Adriana responds. So, you're rounding up all the CSOs, but the Europe Abram, A Arab CSO? That doesn't make sense. If I were to pick any insider behind this, it would be someone from Russia, Yang advised. For a split second, Adriana looks culpable and then defensive while still maintaining her smooth sense of elegance. That's none of your affair, my beauty, Adriana answers. I'm just asking about the man you know, your husband. Maybe we can avoid all any unnecessary unpleasantness in D.C. if we uncover the traitor here and now. Ying fights off a sense of dread and panic, worried as much for herself as for her husband. Is this why you brought me here under false pretenses, thinking I had dirt on my husband? Ying answers, growing angry. Well, I don't. You need to stand down from this plan. These IT directors, they have families. They are loyal and work long hours and thankless jobs where if someone, oh, if something goes wrong, it's always their fault. Hell, I'm married to one of them and I am but his mistress where Globecom is his master. You need these CSOs more than ever. Ridding our IT ranks of some of the more useless or culpable people would set an example. It would also motivate those left behind to find our attackers in record time, Adriana argues. 
I'll stop here, but at the end of this chapter, Ying is actually kidnapped and sent off to a work uh, camp to be held as leverage against her husband, Leonard Smith. So we're now moving on to another chapter, and it is chapter 11, and it's called Bow for the Cistos. As, an as the ultrasonic taxis toward the private takeoff runway at Beijing Daxing Airport, Leonard Smith has no idea what's in store for him in D.C., but he suspects foul play at work. He sips from his glass of Dom and downs another jumbo shrimp, looking like a man with no cares in the world. Internally, however, he feels like he's savoring his last meal. And all he can think about is Yang. He still hasn't heard from her or her family for more than 24 hours. Very unlike her, he says to himself as he scrolls through their images in his visual aid goggles. And nothing from your mother and sisters who are usually calling me 10 times a day. Leonard looks at an image of their wedding party with all eight bridesmaids surrounded by Ying's family. The image so large that he has to scroll three times to get to the end of it. He takes a long sip of his champagne thinking, something else is his play here, but what? And by whom? And how is Ying's departure and his trip to DC part of it? He hasn't slept all night and he's exhausted from thinking. So he removes his goggles, powers them down and tells the cabin controls to switch to sleep mode. As soon as the lights dim and his seat reclines, Leonard is fast asleep. Two hours later, as the plane touches down in Dulles, a soft dinging sound emanates from his mother of pearl cufflink, which is actually a tiny data receiver that turned on when it came in range of land-based signal towers. Given this was his ultra private frequency, he realizes the message has to be coming from his friend, Wizard. Leonard pulls out his personal uh, visual aid goggles, which are rigged with a, a pin-sized port, and plugs the cufflink directly into the miniature port. The one new message waiting reads, title, travel advisory for those en route. Message, watch for long layovers, all hubs, impacted, including inbound and outbound. Layover is their code for the Watergate, and hubs refers to each of the three Globecom hubs, China, America's Euro-Arab. The term inbound and outbound visitors means that people are coming after him from all sides. The only promising wording is en route. Good, Leonard says to himself, at least I get to see Bossa again. The message self-deletes and he replaces his cufflink. He now knows that his hunch is right. Leonard's been ordered to attend this meeting in the D.C. central office under threat from God knows who's left of the Globecom leadership structure. Yet he's going because he needs to keep up appearances that he is doing his job attending his meetings as scheduled and being the team player. Also, he can't resist the last opportunity to wreak a little more havoc on the remnants of Globecom and its board if he gets the chance while in the DC hub. Leonard looks out the window to the private one-way strip, which is clean and eerily empty. Then he looks toward the commercial runways where unused planes are parked side by side all the way up to the empty terminals. It appears that only one runway is operational for essential travel. Good choice not to fly commercial, he thinks. As he disembarks, Leonard half expects armed goons to be waiting for him. Instead, he gets through the empty private plane lobby without problems. But instead of exiting out front, where his Globecom pickup is waiting, he decides to walk through the public terminal, which has only a handful of commercial travelers moving about. 
keeping his eyes down and facing away from the cameras. He hopes he hops into a smart cab at curbside and directs it to drive toward the Globecom's DC hub. The cab navigates by using its own cameras, matching up with local sensors and relying on stored maps. As it exists the 390 as it exits the 395 to New York Avenue, a horde of emergency vehicles races up behind him. The cab pulls over and waits as they pass one after another, an ambulance, then two more, and fire trucks, followed by at least a dozen local police and SWAT vehicles. As they pass him, Leonard gets a sick feeling in his stomach. Slow to five miles per hour, he directs the cab as it passes through the roundabout connecting New York Avenue to Massachusetts Avenue. A block down the road at the 1201 building is the U.S. Cyber Command quarters for Globecom, staffed with its most strategic IT and InfoSec professionals and outfitted with state-of-the-art security technology. The scene out front is chaos, emergency vehicles, lights flashing, and police with weapons drawn running into the building. Change of route, Leonard says to the smart cab. Drop me at the National Museum of Women in the Arts across the street. The cab makes a sharp left and turns down a small side street, dropping him on the corner. He lets the cab go and steps back into the shadowy reaches, arches of the historic Women's Museum building, so he's out of view of cameras. He removes a small observation drone from his pull case, powers it up, and switches it to stealth mode, which renders the drone silent and invisible. Slowly, patiently, Dark Angel guides his drone over the emergency vehicles past the yellow crime scene tape. By the way, Dark Angel is his hacker handle. And through the open double doors in front of the Globecom building, then he lags the drone above, he, he lags the drone above and behind the first responders up the emergency stairs to floor number three. When the drone reaches the third floor lobby, Leonard sees carnage everywhere. The automated reception station had been blown to bits along with the cameras monitoring it and the weapon turrets protecting it. Biometric access controls at the door were rendered useless because the door was cut apart with a laser knife. He steers the drone behind the response team to the conference room where he is supposed to be meeting with Ron Meeker's group at this very moment. An armed responder steps in first, gun pointed, and looks around. This one's cleared, he says after a few seconds. No survivors. With shaky hands, Leonard steers the drone into the conference room after the responders move on. The room is eerily quiet, but for clicking and beeping of computer devices left on during the commotion. The comm lines are open and the overhead screens are still scrolling global damage and vulnerability reports on a 3D map of the Globecom network. Leonard doesn't want to do it, but he must. Slowly, he points the drone camera down towards the conference table. What he sees causes him to gasp and step back farther into the alcove where he bumps his head against an arched stone door jamb. He looks at the image again and sees Ron Meeker splayed in half, half on, half off the conference table, his suit and tie soaked with dark blood. His visual aid goggles are still attached and blinking. Leonard also recognizes two more young technicians from among the half-dozen bodies slumped and bloody on the floor. Dear young Myra, the most brilliant among our developers, he mumbles. He wants to scream, hurl, and punch something all at the same time. 
Leonard then realizes Ron's goggles are still recording. So he wirelessly connects his drone memory to a virtual port in Ron's visual aid goggles and downloads the entire cache of image and audio data. Then he stealthily directs his drone back to him. Time to make myself scarce, he says as he repacks the drone in his case. Still in the shadows, he removes his jacket and tie, stuffing them in his pool case, and replaces them with a blue pullover sweater and a Washington football team cap. Then he jerry-rigs the exit door to open behind him and slips into the women's museum. In a private stall in the bathroom, he messages the Global 24 board members behind Globecom and their security details, attaching the files he uploaded from Juan Meeker's goggles. With comms down, some of the messages will get through and others won't, but he's betting enough of them will get through to do the job of sowing anarchy among the board members. I'm uploading video from Ron Meeker's visual aid goggles, he dictates to the message group solemnly. This footage was taken at the DC hub. The date and timestamps are real. If you are getting this message, it means I'm either dead or will be soon. I'm also sending some damning data that may lead you to who orchestrated this bloodshed at the DC hub. He uploads several terabytes of data on Globecom's dirty board members, including their families and associations, their location data, assets, passcodes, and anything else that could be used to help the board members annihilate each other. He leaves out Adriana Dupre, who evidenced no culpability except as an unwitting pawn. He also doesn't upload the damning data he collected on Ying's esteemed mother from the China hub out of loyalty to Ying and her family. Leonard ends his message by adding, you will also see that Damien Strand is not who he says he is. After sending the message, he inserts a pair of brown colored eye contacts with fake retinas to confuse the scanners. Then he pulls up his left sleeve and points a pen-like extractor into the skin of his forearm just above the wrist. This is going to hurt, he says. He clicks a button on the device and the extractor sucks out his UI at the same time, frying the chip circuits and cauterizing his wound, leaving the faint smell of burning skin. He flushes the fried chip and washes up, looking at himself in the mirror for a moment. Goodbye, Leonard Smith, he says under his breath. Now I am just Dark Angel. So now we're moving to another chapter. You're going to hear a little bit of page turning again. And this chapter is chapter 13, and it's titled Blame the Russian. Blame the Russian. Once in his room on the sixth floor at the Watergate Hotel, Dark Angel finally falls apart. He sinks to the floor in the entry. He's hyperventilating, so he holds his head down between his knees. He can't shake the image of Ron Meeker, of Myra, and of all those others who were shot down at the DC hub like their lives didn't matter. Finally, he stands, his arms and legs shaking. He steps to the sink, removes his cap, and splashes water on his face. Pull yourself together, man. You're a blithering mess, he says, says to himself. He retrieves his case that he'd left by the door and makes his way to the love seat in front of lar the large window, where he places the case on the coffee table and opens it. He's preparing the drone images for personal viewing when he hears a knock on the door. He lets Allure and Sarshay into the room, closing the door quickly behind them. I've got the hallway, elevator, and stairwells, stairwells in a video loop. No one will see you were here, he explains to them at the doorway. They look at him dumbly, and he realizes he hasn't even introduced himself. 
Sorry to meet you under such circumstances. I'm Dark Angel, he explains. Takes a moment to register and then both ladies light up. Oh my gosh, says Sarche. The Dark Angel? I'm here because you are all in danger, he continues. Well, we're here because the clan is in danger and Leonard Smith is too, says Allure. That's why we're here, to protect them all. Allure knows that Dark Angel is Leonard Smith, but sworn to secrecy, she is not sharing that knowledge with the young Sarche. Yeah, well, the clans are the least of our worries, he says, as he picks up his water glass. He needs two hands to hold it, still enough to drink from it. Some t something quite horrible has happened at the D.C. headquarters. People died, good people with families, lives snuffed out as if they didn't matter. He takes another sip of water and then starts rambling. Globecom is already self-imploding. I didn't think it would happen this fast, but I, I, I was late. And on my drone, I saw, I was too late. The aftermath, I saw Ron, I saw them all. Slow down, man, Allure interrupts. We're having trouble following. Take a deep breath and start from the beginning. He pauses, breathes in slowly through his nose, exhales slowly through his mouth, and repeats the breathing three times just like Ying taught him during tough times past. As he goes through the exercise, the tremor in his hands visibly reduces. He takes another sip of water and suddenly remembers there's someone young and impressionable in the room. Uh, should we be talking in front of the girl, he asks. And by the way, who is she? She is me, and I am Sarche, says the petite redhead with green eyes and black nail polish. Daughter of Skew, who is leader of the Clover S. Hacking Clan, and I am a big girl. Do keep talking. He looks at Allure, who nods, and proceeds with his story. Right, so someone was sent to kill Ron Meeker and Leonard Smith, two of the Globecom chief security officers, he says. And whoever it was, they succeeded. Both of them are dead now, along with Ron's close technology team. I, I don't know who else was in the building, but Ron was mowed down. I saw him from the drone. It wasn't our guys, exclaimed Sarche. Their mission wasn't to kill anyone. They just wanted the CISOs to lift their biometrics and stuff. Besides, they've been here at the Watergate this whole time. None of ours is as the, at the Globecom building. I don't think it was anyone from the clans, he confirms. Clearly, these were professionals with deep resources. Well, then, who was it, Allure asks, and are we in danger? We are very much in danger being here at the Watergate where Leonard is known to say, he answers honestly. He is not confirmed dead yet, so they may still be looking for him, and I have my suspicions as to who is after him, which this video will likely prove. If I'm right, the clans are the least of our worries. Except that we'll have to get them out of harm's way, adds Allure, ever the protector. Yes, there is that complication, he agrees. Turning to Sarche, he adds, um... Do you need to use the restroom or something? This next part is going to be graphic. Fine, I have to go anyway, Sarsha says a little snottily as she saunters towards the bathroom. Allure repositions herself next to him on the love seat as he opens the footage. The video appears in a two-foot electroluminescent display that emanates from his wristband. He fast-forwards through hours of recording and then slows the frames to show the last minutes of Ron Meeker's life. Here's what they see from the perspective of Ron Meeker's visual aid goggles. One of Ron's team, Myra, 28, raises her hand from the far end of the conference table. Yes, Myra, how may I help you, Meeker asks. 
Sir, Mr. Meeker, we are wondering when Mr. Leonard Smith would arrive, she asks in her polite Indian way. The DevOps team's very busy, and they would like me to direct them. He should be here momentarily. He's usually not late, but nothing's normal right now. Until then, let's go over our damage and patch status. He looks at his team of six around the conference table, young to middle age, various races and genders, all of obvious intelligence, appearing worn but not defeated. He then switches view to an overhead display screen, scrolling endless lists of vulnerabilities, damages, and incident response workflows mapped against global hotspots on the network. They hear a ruckus down the hall, and Ron looks back at his team. They all recognize the sound of gunfire at the same time, followed by shouting and explosions. Then the building alarm goes off. Everyone take cover, shouts Meeker as he dashes to the conference room double doors that were open for the arrival of Leonard. He closes them manually and then lifts his bags to expose his biometric retinal key at the door panel. Secure room, he says to the interface by the door. The deadlocked bolt, click, 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 making the doors impenetrable. Ron Meeker looks around again at the faces of his co-workers kneeling behind the conference table. They are afraid, but also trusting him to get them out of this. Dark Angel pauses the display for a second and looks up at Allure. Every room on the tech floor is reinforced, reinforced with thick cinder walls and bulletproof doors that can only be locked or unlocked by classifying globe bomb employees, he tells her. It would take equally powerful biometrics to open the door so they know they should be safe. And yet, dot, dot, dot. He stops talking for a moment while Allure is silent beside him. I, I don't think I can go on. I'm dreading what comes next, he confesses. Allure reaches over, gently holds his wrist in her hand, and then turns the feed on again. After successfully locking up the safe room, Ron Meeker turns to his teammates. Their look of relief is instantly replaced by panic as the bolts unlock one at a time, unclick, unclick, unclick. And the dawning realization on all their faces is that they are about to die. Like a bear protecting its cubs, Meeker positions himself between his staff and the door, turning to face the enemy. The doors burst open and he zeroes in on a Globecom badge worn by the lead attacker before he is suddenly gunned down. Then the image jostles wildly and in and out of focus to the sound of gunfire and screaming. The visual aid goggles shift to a cockeyed view of the ceiling and the image remains still. There are more sounds of screaming and human bodies cracking and thudding as they land lifeless on the floor. All the while, Myra can be heard in the background praying to her Hindu gods. Until hers, the last voice of them all is finally snuffed out. Dark, Dark Angel, stop, Angel starts the feed and wipes his eyes, saying, Myra was getting married in a month. Ying and I were going to her wedding. He turns the feed on again. A masked face appears for an instant over Ron's bags, and then an arm reaches out to remove the goggles until shouting from down the hallway interrupts him. Stop! Police, they hear, followed by more gunfire. One of the shooters, a man with a thick Russian accent, is audible in the background. Leave them! We must go now! The masked face moves out of the picture, and the goggles continue recording the ceiling. Dark Angel stops the feed and feels a rage he's never felt before, burning, ready to kill. I knew it! 
I knew it, he says too loudly. The Russians did this. They want to take over Globecom or whatever's left of it. The bastards. So that puts a little action into the real types of jobs that CISOs actually have to deal with. And I just wanted to tell this story as part of my book series because I have a real heart for the CISOs, but I also think that most hackers are good guys. Uh, I don't call the criminals hackers. Um, so anyway, I hope you enjoyed this read. Just know that my books are available at Amazon and all bookselling outlets in print, ebook, and audio. So please be sure to pick up the books and support this indie author. Also share with your friends. As for this uh, CISO Under the Gun series, uh, we're going to follow the lives of the brave souls who work in different critical infrastructure verticals. And we hope you will join us for this series that we'll be playing every couple of weeks until we run out of topics. Learn their secrets for success as we talk about life as a CISO in specific critical infrastructure verticals. We will also include a panel or many panel discussions on CISO liability and indemnity and life after CISO. Where do they go once they leave their employers? Compliance and policy and managing new security risks introduced with artificial intelligence, along with other topics, will also be planned for this series. Hope to see you there, and thanks for listening in. I hope you enjoyed the read. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the SciBeat Podcast with Deb Radcliffe, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.